This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. And then the cells crawled out of the edge of the dish. And now we're going to take a quick five-minute break for coffee. (laughs) Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we learn how to craft a memorable and motivating job talk using lessons from filmmaking. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 189. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Dan. Back at it, Josh. Uh, We have something from the bottom of my fridge, an ethanol. And I almost drank this one a couple of weeks ago because I thought we had already done this one on the show and we did not. Yeah, Dan. We are getting low on our podcast beer selection, so we're going to have to to re restock the shelves. But you know, Dan, I purchased a bunch of different beer from our local beer store in Durham, North Carolina when I was in town. I think it was back in May or June. It was in the summer months, and we stocked up so we would have enough beer for at least six months worth of podcasting. And I think it's like the fridge that never empties. There's some magical <laughs> property that we keep having a beer uh, that presents itself. I have to give these a discounted skunk factor because they've been in the bottom of the <laughs> fridge so long. They're not fresh, I'll say that. What I try to do when I pick out beer for the show is I try to look for beers that have some element that I think is interesting that we can talk about on the show, either some new type of beer we haven't tried before, beer from a new location, or some other unique feature. So to tell you a little bit about the one we're going to have today, uh, we're going to have an IPA. Have you heard of those? Nope. First time. First time caller. <laughs> second time drinker. Uh, this will certainly an IPA is not a unique beer that we've never had on the show. We've had lots of IPAs on the show. But what caught my attention about this one was it is a Trappist Monk Brewed IPA. However, even that wasn't totally unique. We have had Monk Brewed beer on the show before. However, Dan, this is an American Trappist Monk Brewed beer. And we've actually had, this is why I was thrown off by this beer. We've had a beer from this brewery. It is the uh, Spencer American Trappist Monk Brewery. We've had this before? We've had a Spencer beer before? We have. Let me go look it up. All right, Dad. Well, the magic of podcast editing, you just looked it up and we actually have had a Spencer uh, American Trappist Monk brewed beer before. Okay. Well, at the time I was purchasing beer, I forgot that that was the case. And in my mind, this was a unique beer that we had had. Well, it is a unique beer, right? We have not had the Spencer IPA. I agree with you. I think this is really an unusual IPA as well. So we're actually tasting this now. And I don't, it doesn't taste like an IPA to me exactly. Would you say if, if I told you this was a Belgian style IPA, almost like a mix of the two? Yes. That's what it reminds me of. Because I do feel like there's a bit of a caramel flavor or a candy sugar or something going on. Well, Dan, I have to tell you, I hope you don't enjoy this beer too awful much because as I was doing some Googling, some research for the ethanol section of today's show, uh, I Googled Spencer Brewery to see what the monks were up to in Spencer, Massachusetts. And the first article that popped up had the headline, the monks of St. Joseph's Abbey are closing Spencer Brewery and the brewery actually shut down over the summer. You've got to be kidding me. You let me open this? <laughs> so, this could sorry, have been my retirement to... <laughs> nest egg, Josh. Yeah. Wow. I feel really privileged. This is in the bottom of the fridge and it's a rarity. I know. Ed, you know, apparently Spencer Brewery opened only in 2014. Too much fanfare. But business has been tough. And... The brewery director, William Dingwall, stated one reason that business had been slow is the Spencer Brewery, while they brew beer, they do not have a tap room for people to visit and purchase beer, and that has been a revenue stream that they weren't able to tap into, if you will. Nice. 
So anyway, let's pour one out for our former friends at Spencer Brewery. Well, that is fully depressing. Uh, I am going to go full hipster mode here, though. Can I do that for a minute? Please. Uh, my favorite beer is the Spencer Monk's India Pale Ale, but you can't really get it anymore, so I guess you're not going to get to try it. Well, I am now, once I read that, I'm going to go ahead and say it on the show. This is by far the best IPA I've ever had and probably ever will have. Never better. <laughs> go out, Go out and get your own. <laughs> well, I'm glad we tried this together, and sorry, listeners, you'll never experience how amazing this best IPA of all time truly was. We're off to a great start, Josh. Uh, before we get further into the episode, I want to thank our sponsors at Promega. You know, some of the first techniques that you're going to learn in a biology lab are purifying and amplifying nucleic acids. And whether you're new to lab or you might just need a refresher, you can nail down these basic skills and learn how to overcome whatever challenges come your way. Totally boost your confidence in the lab by checking out the Student Resource Center at Promega. Uh, You can just go to promega.com slash hello DNA. All right, Dan, let's get on with our topic of the week. All right, Dan, we have uh, an old friend back on the show today. That's right. You know, Josh, we have covered a lot of topics on this podcast over the years. We've talked to, to about graduate training, postdoctoral issues. We've talked to faculty, uh, tenured faculty members who got their jobs and how they got their jobs. But there was this major milestone in an academic career that I don't think we've ever talked about. And it's funny because we've all watched it. We've all watched this moment in an academic's life, and it is the job talk. I assume you've seen a few job talks in your day? I sure have. Dan, you know what I always think when I go see a job talk? I mean, obviously, I've seen lots of different scientific talks in different contexts, whether it's a, a lab meeting or a student seminar or go to a conference. But I always have a little bit of anxiety for the person who's standing up there. They've traveled you know, to your university, they've got on like their best shirt. Maybe they're wearing a suit jacket that they've never worn in like three years. Right. And you just can feel the nervousness for them because you know how much is on the line for that one talk. Yeah. And as an audience member, it's uncomfortable. Imagine standing up there. I don't, did you ever have to give a job talk or did you kind of land in your job through a side alley? I have Dan, I have, have given a, a job talk before actually in my, current job i had to you know, I had to give a 30 minute talk on some of the the work that i had done and that was due to the pandemic that was actually over zoom to a bunch of people on the zoom screen i'm wow. not sure if that was better or worse but um, i felt equally nervous for sure well no matter where you are in your academic training listener there are some things you're going to hear in this interview that i did um, about crafting a message describing your research And no matter where you are, this is going to be applicable because the goal is to convey what you've done in a way that brings the audience along with you, that helps them to understand your work and also gives them ideas about what you're going to do in the future. So stay tuned, even if you're not in the job market. But Josh, I spoke to Dr. Andres Delos Reyes. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland. And I interviewed him a few years ago about his book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox. We talked, I think it was episodes 135 and 137, we talked about finding a research mentor and what that meant, um, how to find a good one, how to reach out to them. But I asked him back on the show to talk about the third section of his book, which is about giving a job talk. And this was, I think we talked to him back in 2019, so it was was pre-pandemic. Actually, it was 2020, Dan. 2020? 2020. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it was right after the pandemic. Yep. It was still it was still several years ago. So I assume people don't have it memorized. One of the things that he talked about, and I want to just refresh people's memory on, uh, because we're gonna you're gonna hear it again in this interview. He has this metaphor for academic training, and he describes uh, your space in the academic world, sort of like there's this universe. There's a universe of research going on scientific research. Your lab uh, with your PI is like one galaxy. So your PI has crafted some research. There are postdocs, there are papers. They're all swirling around in this galaxy of this one type of research. And when a new academic is born, an emerging academic who starts their own lab, 
they are kind of pulling out of this galaxy and forming their own galaxy. And so you'll hear him use this metaphor a little bit, but what we're talking about today, this job talk is that transition space. It's this new scientific endeavor being born out of some existing scientific research. And so uh, take a listen to this, Josh, and we'll come back and try to unpack some of the ideas. Today, I am joined by Andres de los Reyes. Welcome back to Hello PhD. Great to be back. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, it has been a long time since we talked. I think 2020, May of 2020, there was a pandemic raging. Since it has been so long since we talked, I was hoping that you would remind our listeners a little bit about your biography and some of your academic interests. Sure. So I received my PhD from Yale in 2008. That same year, I joined the faculty in the Department of Psychology at the University of Maryland at College Park, where, where I remain to this day. So I think this is my 15th year there. All throughout that time, I've been doing, you know, what you'd expect a professor to do, research, teaching, service to the uh, campus and larger profession. But at the same time, I've also been thinking about ways in which to take pieces of the hidden curriculum, the kinds of stuff you don't take a class in, and try to translate them into tangible products through media that we're all used to consuming. And uh, one of the big ones that, that people talk about a lot, but don't get a lot of formal instruction on, are you know how to deliver job talks, how to craft a research program, how to pick mentors. And, and the book, The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox, was kind of a way of, of me translating all the the years of advice I've been giving, years of advice I was given as a graduate student and as a faculty member so that, you know, folks get the benefit of this advice without having great mentors around to help shepherd them along in their careers. Yeah, and I hope everybody will go back and listen to the first interview where we chatted was episodes 135 and 137 back in 2020, as I mentioned. But I think what's really compelling about your approach to this is your background and your focus in clinical psychology, because I think that kind of shapes the meta picture you take of these relationships between a mentor and a mentee, the way that academics learn to be academics. You have this phrase called emerging academics. Can you talk about the link between that clinical psychology background and the observations you're making in your book, Early Career Researchers Toolbox? As a psychologist, we get a lot of practice identifying patterns in behavior understanding why those patterns emerge and developing techniques for moving behavior around when, when a movement could create benefits for the person doing all the behaving. And so in that same space, we all know that your behavior is often dictated by a variety of aspects of your life, including where in life you are. And so the concept of emerging academics stems from this notion that when you start your training, you're being asked to do a lot of things you had no training in, in a very short period of time. And it's almost like you're being asked to go from crawling to running to walking at a way more accelerated sequence than you, than you might've been accustomed to in other parts of your life. And so that, period in a, in a researcher's career is equal parts exciting, terrifying, and, and, and in that respect, oftentimes it's the case that figuring out what behaviors require some, uh, some remediation to do a world of good, and along those lines, a big chunk of the book is inspired by key principles an area of work called behavior modification, and in particular, this element of behavior modification called shaping and modeling, the idea that sometimes getting a sense of how to modulate your behavior on the path to positive outcomes can be, can be greatly facilitated by seeing examples of the successes you want to have. Yeah, that, that's really helpful for people. And I think the book is laid out really in three sections. The first section is talking about figuring out where you're going to fit in academia. And, and we talked pretty extensively about this in our first conversation, talking about identifying what burning question drives your work and identifying a mentor in whose lab you can start to address that burning question. The third section of the book, which is really focused around how to build a research program. And I think some listeners probably just froze in panic when I said the phrase build a research program, 
because that that is the birth of this new galaxy this new galaxy that's going to have all of its own it's it's got its own burning question it's going to have its own graduate students and postdocs and grants and research activities and you know somebody on the cusp maybe they're a postdoc maybe they're a graduate student they're saying i'm supposed to do what you know so that was my long-winded introduction to saying let's say a postdoc has started to think about this job search process. And I'm, I'm sure we could spend 10 podcast hours focusing on the, the nuts and bolts of an application. But can you talk a little bit about what the applicant screening looks like from the faculty search committee side? And, and we'll come back to this concept of building a research program after we understand a little bit about how faculty members get made. Sure. So think back... We, we, you know, all of us who've received doctoral training, I mean, one of the things that I find most about doctoral training, and my own doctoral training, and I advise my students to think about it the same way, attend as many job talks as you possibly can. They are nerve-wracking. They're, they are vicariously nerve-wracking. <laughs> Everything's on the line. Everything is on the line. You know why? Because it's a performance. It's unlike anything else anyone else ever does. Sure, you give presentations at conferences and you give presentations that's in class, but the stakes aren't nearly as high. This isn't performance in a Broadway sense. No one's expecting you off the top of your head to do that eight-minute classic monologue in the Iceman comments or something like that. But rather, you're coming onto campus with the privilege of your expertise, and I say that in the you know in relation to the faculty who are reviewing applications, at, for the grand majority of applications that you're submitting to for all these faculty jobs, the common denominator will be, with maybe one or two exceptions, you will know more about your topic than any other faculty member in that in that department or at that school. That's comforting. Your job is to shrink the gap between your expertise and what the audience is looking for. The faculty members are looking for. They're looking for a colleague. They're looking for a colleague they can create excuses to work with. They're looking for a colleague who will create excuses to work with students to provide effective instruction in the classroom and, and service to the community and profession and the like. And the way you shrink that gap is through storytelling. Storytelling is the answer to all the anxieties that you have about applying to faculty jobs, going to, to interviews. And the reason why it's the answer is because when you think back to the best job talks you've seen, but importantly, to any other place where you heard a compelling piece set of information delivered to you in each of those circumstances, a key reason for why you found that war that information compelling is because it was delivered to you within a narrative structure. I always tell students, if you want to get good at giving talks of any kind, and especially a job talk, go where great stories are told. This podcast, your favorite film, your favorite book, you know, your favorite documentary, they all are telling great stories and importantly that storytelling has is a bit of art but the grand majority of this pure science i want to push back for the listener who's saying i'm a scientist not an artist i'm a scientist not a storyteller and i i got through the application screening process i have one chance to show them my 12 first author papers. And I'm going to, I need to beat out these other people. So why shouldn't I just, you know, blind them with science, as it were, give them as much as I can to show them that I'm very productive as a researcher? Great question. And it relates back to, I think one of the big red flags in a job talk, and I'll, I'll describe it in a second. But first, I want to talk about what got you to the interview. You, know, you get to that interview stage, you give that talk, 
only after beating out 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, sometimes hundreds of applications. Right. Now you're in a subset, a much smaller subset, a minuscule subset in relation to the rest of those applications. Usually we're talking about two, three, four people invited to these applicant interviews. What all of those people have in common is that they're very, very productive. You've already passed the screener on productivity. That's it. You don't have to worry about that. What you do have to worry about is making sure that your colleagues know that you can deliver information to them, to students, to graduates, to undergraduates, postdocs, in a coherent fashion that people can understand, absorb, and engage with. The thing that I think is the worst thing you could possibly do in a job talk is the dreaded one-slide study, which is taking those 12 studies you did and saying, I did this one, and I did this one, and I did this one, and I did this one, all the way down to your 12. I've checked off all the boxes, right? Can I have my job now? That's not the way this works. And the reason why it doesn't work that way is because... People will react to that talk and say to themselves, you're busy, so are the other three candidates. Where's the context? Did you just do those 12 studies because your mentor told you to? What's the core? What's the essence? It's like asking yourself, who, which kind of filmmaker would I rather be? Would I rather be like the schlocky horror film director that that whose whose meaning in life is is to get the next green light to do the next schlocky horror film or would you rather be Wes Anderson the Coen brothers Scorsese you know you know would you rather be Meryl Streep or Jennifer Lawrence or Al Pacino you you want to be that person that stays busy but at the end of their career can say to themselves, I'm really happy about these three or four or five things that I did. That's how great artists think about their careers. And I think that's also how great scientists should think about their careers. And it starts at the job talk. It's taking those 12 studies and asking yourself, I'm really happy about all these 12 studies. I am happier about some more than others. Right. Are there specific kinds of studies that reflect me, who the kind of work that I want to do, the galaxy that I want to create? And once you find that subset, in my mind, it's just three. Then the question at the job talk stage becomes, in what sequence do I deliver them to, to maximize their engagement with the audience? And you make the reason for this pretty clear in the book. You know, you you start with the audience, and you describe them as as kind of that bar scene in Star Wars. There there are a wide diversity of characters in that bar scene, and there's going to be a wide diversity of people at your job talk. But what you say is you you are trying to give them a script so that they know how to advocate for you. And I think this is really important for somebody doing a job talk is to understand what the audience is looking for. They'll be assessing you on your commitment to your research program and your ability to connect ideas and synthesize knowledge. Like you said, they are looking for a colleague and somebody who they think has long-term lasting potential in the research environment. And so if you barf a bunch of facts at them, that doesn't tell me about your, about your fortitude, about your stamina with, with when things go wrong, about how you take complex subjects from disparate parts of the literature and put them together. But you do need, you need to demonstrate those things during your job talk. And so you've got this trilogy tool, which I want you to talk about. But, but first, you shape it around sort of an unli- unlikely role model, the film director Wes Craven. Can you tell us about why Wes Craven is somebody that we as job talk aficionados should care about? So what initially turned me on to thinking about Wes Craven as a, as a nice model for storytelling, when I, when I first saw those movies within the Scream series, had this knack for 
telling a compelling story, but within that story, stepping back and showing you some of the meta elements of storytelling. So within each of the movies, he has a central character that communicates core ideas about narrative structure. And in particular, how that structure is exemplified within a trilogy of films. Then it became clear that maybe this could be a place where I could define and elaborate upon those core elements of storytelling as they can be exemplified in one way of giving job talks. Because at the end of the day, this is the great thing of storytelling. Storytelling scales up and scales down. It scales up all the way up through a trilogy of films, a trilogy of studies or what have you, and scales all the way down to that fantastic paragraph that you're really proud of at the tail end of, your, of the introduction to your paper. I mean, you see, and, and once you see storytelling for what it is, nothing really looks the same after that. It's almost like, you know, you know, being busted out of the matrix. basically. Right. Yeah. It, it is absolutely everywhere. And, and this is, I want to emphasize this, this is applicable for any talk you give, any piece of writing that you do. The, this concept of leading the audience through in the way that compels them is, I think, what you're about to describe to us. So this trilogy tool, it applies to the movies, and it's going to apply to our job talk. Tell us what the three parts are, and then I would like to step through how we apply, specifically how we apply our research to this concept of a trilogy. Sure. First thing to keep in mind is, and to your point, scientists aren't trained to be artists. Now, I think it's just a, it's a misconception that storytelling as a, as a device, as a tool, it strictly falls within the purview of artists. I think all of us, all of us who wish to communicate information, you know, would be- benefit greatly from using this structure. Amen. The way you overlay that structure into thinking about, thinking strategically about your job talk, it's, it's less about what you're going to say, because you already know that. You already have a firm sense of the kinds of work you're planning on discussing and the overall take-home messages you'd like the audience to receive. Storytelling in the scientific context really revolves around, I know the information I'm going to deliver. Now, in what sequence should I deliver that information to maximize its engagement with the audience, to facilitate cross-pollination of ideas, the Q&A period, you know, get, getting, getting questions that, that can help you shine on the interview stage. So each of these portions of this trilogy tools as described in the book are designed to ensure that whatever information you're going to convey lands in the way that you'd expect. And how great it is it to have a framework? I don't know how to take my 12 studies and make it three and I don't know how to tell a story, but what you're, what you're going to get into is these hooks that we can just hang our research on, start to draw some connections between the pieces, and we don't have to start with that blank page. There is a, a structure, a story structure that is going to help us to bring the audience along, and we don't have to make it up. It's been around for thousands of years. That's right. And that's where the trilogy tool comes in. The trilogy tool helps you figure out not necessarily, you know, you know, what you did with your work, that's already past tense. Rather, it's the trilogy tool helps you figure out among the, all the different things you did during your training, which of these pieces stand out as the kinds of pieces that, that best exemplify or illustrate how I, as a scholar, turn my questions and my framework into action. I love it. Can we talk about what the three parts of the trilogy are? I think you mentioned them briefly, but if we could spend a little time on each one and and help us pick the types of research that would f- hang on each of those hooks. Sure. So, and this goes back to these, this idea of filmmaking. Here's the interesting thing with filmmaking is that when somebody like Craven or, or any kind of director puts together a movie 
that does so well that it becomes a trilogy, that starting film has to have an essence that motivates people to say, we spent money on this one. People loved it. We want to see more. The people loved it part is the engagement piece. The opening film in a trilogy and the opening study in Jotop has to be maximally engaging. It doesn't have to be the most interesting of the three of the three pieces of work, but it has to be the one that you say to yourself, this is where I hook them. This is where I'm able to get them to say to themselves, you have my attention. What else? What else you got? That's the, the job of that first study. It's got to hook the audience. And do you have an example of something? I guess we're going to talk about the three different parts, but is there something we can look for in maybe some of our research papers that tell us this is the right one out of my 12 or whatever I've done? Yes. So that opening study, you know, they're not all the same for all people, but you can see some telltale characteristics where you say to yourself, this might be the right kind of opening study. Let's say there's a controversy in the, in the literature germane to your burning question. People were like, mm, I think it's this way, but you have a study that suggests actually it might be this other way. And here's some of the ways in which I think that some of the prevailing wisdom might be incorrect. It's compelling. That's a place where somebody might say, I'd like to hear more. Another way it could be, I devised a new model for, or a new methodology for tackling issues germane to my theoretical framework and my question. And the trick always is, and this is unlike filmmakers, because when a filmmaker is told from a production studio or the audience, is there a sequel? It usually comes to the filmmaker's surprise. Very few trilogies in, in the history of film were told from the get-go, right? Because all that's expensive. So usually that sequel comes as a surprise. So it's important to think about that opening study as saying to yourself, okay, I think I can hook the audience and I have another piece of work in my 12 studies that I think will fit as a good sequel. And let's talk about that. So step one is we're going to try and make people care. We're going to draw them in either with this controversy that yeah. we're addressing or this new model, something that we can describe our research in a way that makes them care about our burning question with us. And then what do we do with this sequel? The sequel is an interesting scenario. Think back to sequels that you've seen in film that you've really enjoyed. And this is something that Craven talks about too. You know, you know, Craven really cared about character development, really cared about creating characters that people would be motivated to see more of. That's where the opening you know, film comes in, making people care about the story and the characters in them. The sequel tries to take the things you liked about the opening movie and expand them a, a, a little bit. You make in the context of a, of a horror film, the, the body count gets bigger, you know, the, the, the weapons get bigger, the, the characters, might, the villain might get bigger. But in your case, it's really more, okay, this is what I think will make the audience care about my research program. This study is a continuation of some of the, the things that I think they'll like about it. But the trick with the sequel is to keep people engaged, but then think, how am I going to, to end this? If you think back to great sequels in the history of film, and they usually end with a cliffhanger, something to motivate the third film. Luke, I am your father, is the classic cliffhanger for the end of a fantastic sequel, right? So, you, you know, you, you're trying to say to yourself, I want to keep them engaged, but in the process, I got to make them a little uncomfortable. They might not know the discomfort yet. That's the job of the third study in your trilogy, but the trick is it, it, with that sequel is it, I'm, I'm maintaining their, their attention in the service of creating a conflict. And that conflict is so key. It's hard for me to picture what, what a research conflict might be. And so if we have our first 
study that we're describing, maybe there's a controversy, or we came up with a new model, or, or whatever it is that, that drew them in with our burning question, what does a conflict look like in, in a research scenario? In a research scenario, you have that engaging study, you might have a second engaging study. But collectively, what those studies might have in common is an underlying limitation that neither one of them could address. They could focus on a facet of your branding question that leaves unresolved pieces of your question that's left up to that third study to address. Think about those things. And, and you know what? You know, here's a way to think about it. Every one of our empirical papers, you know, I argue has the, has the structure for storytelling, but we don't make good use of it. Introduction, methods, results in discussion. In that discussion section, you, you, the grand majority of us are instructed by journal outlets to spend some time thinking about the limitations of our work. I mean, in, in many respects, the sequel is a way for you to exemplify limitations of your own work, of, of, of the larger field, of what have you. And at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is use those limitations in counterintuitive ways to make the audience uncomfortable. And, you're gonna, and, and what you're going to do by making them uncomfortable is motivating them to hear an, at least one more story. I can, I can feel the edge of your seat nature of this. I've, I've introduced just enough discomfort that people are leaning forward a little bit. Hey, wait, what about that limitation that he described? Doesn't that invalidate all of these other things he just said? And now I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm leaning in and trying to figure out, well, where is he going with this? And, you know, if he can resolve this tension, then I got the satisfaction of the story. If he just leaves it floating out there, then I'm going to go home very grumpy. So tell us about the third piece. Yeah, the, the third piece is the closing story in a trilogy does some really neat things. What this closing story in a trilogy does that I find fascinating is that, and this is something that, that, that Craven talks about in, in, in his third screen movie, the third story in a trilogy's job is to take the audience back to the beginning of the story and showing something to them that they thought was true your expectation, but wasn't true. It's the mind blowing moment. So, and think back and think back to every great trilogy of stories you've, you've ever consumed. Every great, every great trilogy does that exact same thing. In the sequel, Luke Skywalker figures out that Darth Vader's his dad. And, and it's not a coincidence that in the third story, he finds that Princess Leia's his sister. Oh, spoiler alert. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you're right. That it, and then you, then you go back to some of the prior movies where he gives her a kiss or something, and you're like, oh, I didn't know that at the time, but that is super weird. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And usually what that new piece of information should do is, is start the beginning of the process of resolving that tension that you created with your second study. It's not just, you know, you know, big piece of information that throws you off guard. It's going to help me address this idea that there's a big limitation in those first two studies. You know, you know all throughout the history of scholarly discourse on, on, on this burning question, we've been looking at it this way. My first two studies are just like that. This new direction of work that I'm going in, you know, helps to address this something that nobody else has addressed before. So the neat thing with the trilogy in the job talk context that's different than trilogies in film, that traditionally trilogies in film are like third story wraps everything up in a bow. Nothing left to see here, folks. Story's done. And if you don't ever want to tell any stories, it's fine. If you do want to tell more screen films, then just bring somebody back from the dead or whatever. But, but in the context of your job talk, that third study in your trilogy can wrap things up in a bow and leave the door open. Either way can work, but what 
what you have to do under all circumstances after telling that third story is tell people, is make, make it very clear to people that you have more stories to tell. And that comes to the epilogue where you're describing, here's the research that I completed. I've told my entire trilogy story arc, but here are all of the different ways that this fans out, that these are other research avenues I want to pursue. My burning question is still burning and there are still things that we need to know. And I think making the connection to the department, can you talk a little bit about that, about how you take that story you've just told and fit it into the job that you're actually applying for? Yeah. So very important portion of the, of the talk. You, you have to give your audience the impression that there's more work for it left for you to do, more work that specifically relates to the studies that, the, that you described in your job talk, more work that expands upon maybe that last idea that you discussed in your third study in your trilogy. And, and ideally, you're describing these directions for future work in such a way that you can find connections between that idea you want to pursue and that member of the faculty and that idea you want to pursue and that member of the faculty. Most of these faculty openings, well, they're, they're rare. They're, they've become rarer over time. Absolutely they are. And, and what that usually means for most areas of scholarly discourse, most departments, most, most schools and units on campus is that people want to maximize the value of the, of the person they're going to hire for that specific faculty position. Yeah, that, that faculty position might be embedded in a specific doctoral program or a specific master's program or within a specific department or unit on campus, but people are really hoping this person can, can create excuses to talk with folks who, do work, who, do, who pursue scholarly work in very different ways or from very different training backgrounds. And so to the degree that you can create an epilogue that reaches various corners of the Star Wars bar, the more likely it is the case that people are going to see, you know what, from a cost, from a cost effectiveness standpoint, this person stands out as the kind of person I'd like to have on my faculty. I love it. The, the work was interesting as its own packaged story, but the thing that's going to make me advocate for you is to say, I want you here. I don't want you at some other university where we can't have hallway conversations. I want you on this campus. And so making those connections, I think, is hugely valuable. Here's what's exciting to me. So we did a bit of our own conflict and trilogy here, and, I, and you do this quite effectively in the book. When we first started talking about building a research program, that felt overwhelming and scary because I didn't know what that was or how to do it. What we've just talked about is the framework, the, the tools we can use to actually describe what a research program would look like in a job talk. And you talk a little bit about how this is actually how research programs get developed. We don't do this as a postdoc and take years to do it. Usually we have a job coming up or we have an application coming up and we have to look back over our work and put it together. So talk a little bit about that that process of putting together a research program sort of at the last minute for most people. This is the part that I think rightfully so induces panic in people the first time they put together a job talk. You know, this is, and this goes back to something we discussed, you know, at the beginning of our discussion here, you know, think back to your favorite job talks, what they all might've had in common is that you step away from that talk and you're not only impressed, but it feels like the person spent years putting that story together. No one expects a graduate student, a postdoc, to have had it all figured out for four years. The, these great job talks that are delivered by, by early career researchers as graduate students, as postdocs, typically constructed in the weeks and months before the campus interview. And the reason why that is, it's not because we're slacking off and like waiting to do this really important thing at the last minute. It's, it goes back to this emerging academic concept. I mean, not only are you being asked to do a lot of things in a rapid sequence, learn new knowledge, but also then figure out how to create knowledge within, within your area of, of work. But you also don't have all the control you would need 
to plan a story years in advance. You get recruited by a mentor. That mentor has a galaxy of their own. You have to build a solar system within that galaxy, but within the confines of that galaxy. And so faculty members don't expect you to have it all figured out way, way, way in advance. That'd be unrealistic. You know? So if you find yourself in this spot where I don't know what I'm going to talk about, I don't know which, which things to work on, I don't know how to communicate with this audience yet, take comfort in knowing that, that everyone else who's ever gotten a job has been in more or less the same place you are especially the first job. You, you share a great story from a colleague at Yale who I think was a new faculty member and expressed the exact same experience. And, and tell a little bit of that story. That was a great story. Yeah, so this was a, a meeting, and it's burned my memory. I, it's, it's been 20 years since I had this meeting with a, with a faculty member who had just recently been recruited in the same department that, that I received my doctoral training. We were having a conversation about other things, you know, a variety of other things. And one of the things that came up unprompted was, was he said, you know, got to my postdoctoral stage. I, you know, started applying to the faculty positions and people were telling me that I got to tell them what my research program is. And and I was blown away to hear from a faculty member at a really good university who, who had a fantastic career that, that up until that moment, they just didn't, they didn't know what that was research program yeah i'm expected to do that like yeah you are and 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 most people who are asked to put it together are are being asked to put it together in a really short period of time because it really doesn't come together till the end yeah it's it gives me comfort to know that and, and i think a lot of listeners comfort to know you don't have to know this in advance you probably don't have the capacity to design in advance but you can, after the fact, string together these threads and, and tell the story in such a way that a research program emerges out of what felt like chaos, maybe, as you were doing it. And your skill at, at tying those things together is what's going to help you be successful in that job talk, not the fact that you had a perfectly prescribed path through all of your research. And so take comfort in that. This has been fantastic. And I want to remind people the book is called The Early Career Researcher's Toolbox, Insights to Mentors, Peer Review, and Landing a Faculty Job. Where can they find that book and where can they find you online? They can find the book at wherever fine books are sold, Amazon, you know, or Walmart, you name it, just search online for it. You'll find a merchant. And if you search for me, you know, on the University of Maryland website or, or on ResearchGate, feel free to reach out with any questions you might have. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you for your time. All right, Dan. Wow. Thanks for that. It was great to have Dr. Delos Race back on the show. Uh, one thing I will say right out of the gate, he loves his movies. Total movie buff. And it comes through in his book and, and when you talk to him. It's really fun. You know, this is, this is a little bit of a side, but one thing I loved about that, clearly his passion for films and movies comes through even as he's he's drawing these parallels between the academic space and things he's really interested in. And I like that. I think we should do more of that, this sort of blending of your professional life uh, with things that you, you love in your personal life, sort of drawing these connections and lessons uh, between the two. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating and something that's going to stick with me for a while. These lessons about crafting a research program and putting a comprehensive talk to encapsulate this large body of work that you've done in the terms of something that many of us are familiar with an epic movie trilogy. I just thought that was really brilliant. And by framing it in that way, I'm going to easily remember that I'm going to remember those themes um, as I think about crafting my own epic research talk. Yeah. I mean, but you have the chance anytime you speak or write or host a podcast to tell a story and I think what he's encouraging us to do is to avoid spitting facts or worse, trying to show off our 15 papers that we did and really think about it from the audience perspective. What is it they want? When a person makes a movie, they don't say, I have this story to tell and I don't care if anybody likes it. They say, what's going to engage my audience? What's going to compel them? And I don't know if you have this, Josh, but I think in, in the scientific world, in, in the technology world, there is a little bit of a pushback about too much on the art side, too much storytelling, too much 
you know, maybe you feel like you're manipulating the audience by crafting a story. And, and I think what he's telling us is that's not true at all. There are human beings in your audience, and this is how human beings get information. Yeah, that's totally right. And I jotted it down as, as he was talking, because I think it's so true. I think especially as you're starting out, you're, you're a student, and you're, you're giving talks, you know, maybe for, not for the first time, but, you know, the first few times. And I think when you're early in your career, your motivation when giving a talk is you want to make sure just that you are at least appearing like somewhat close to an expert. Like actually maybe not even an expert, right. but someone who generally knows what you're talking about. And so I know what I would do in those early days of graduate school is I was so focused on making sure just that I got the information correct when I was giving the talk. If I could just do that and say everything that was factual and correct, I would consider that a win. But Dan, you know, we've been to many scientific talks and a lot of them a lot of them I'm sure were factually accurate and I'm sure they were presenting research that was uncovering facets of some really interesting question, but I didn't necessarily, it didn't capture me, Dan. I guess you've probably been to scientific talks where maybe you weren't quite emotionally invested or captured uh, by what could have been a really interesting burning question, because I think what Dr. Dalis Reyes is saying is, you know, at some point we make that pivot from just focusing in on getting factual information across to getting that information across in a way that captures the imagination and attention of our audience and tells a story um, that's going to stick with our audience um, and actually cause them to think more and become more interested in, in what we're doing. Yeah, and that's always important, whether it's a job talk or not, it's always important to engage the audience because you may want a collaboration or a reference or whatever out of it. It's so much more important when you have this search committee that you need to advocate for you. They're going to go back into their meeting space and they're going to talk about whether to hire you or the other person. And so you have to give them what they need to advocate on your behalf. And you can either bore them to death or you can make them so excited about you as a candidate that they're the ones arguing to hire you. And that's a great place to be. Yeah, it totally is, Dan. And you know that reminds me that a really well done talk, just like a really well done series of films, the filmmaker or the person giving the the talk really is in control, and they're thinking almost like they're they're crafting their presentation at a higher level, where they're not only presenting information, but they're anticipating they're bringing you as an audience member along right where they want you to be because they know what further information they're going to give you. And I was really glad you asked this question, Dan, because I was, as I was listening to this for the first time, Dr. Dalis Race was discussing thinking about what you initially present as like your first film, like sort of your first volley um, of, okay, well, here's the really core experiment that dug into the, dug into the really burning question we had. And then here's the sequel that's going to build upon that and leave some cliffhanger. And and you asked the question, I was totally asking, like, well, what does that really mean or look like in a scientific context? Like, you know, you don't really set up a cliffhanger in a scientific talk or in a job talk the way you would in the second Avengers movie. And then right? the cells crawled out of the edge of the dish. <laughs> I don't. I, science is quite take that a exciting. Quick five minute break for coffee. <laughs> and fun. <laughs> uh, you, you know, but but I thought what he what he said was so was so smart. It was well. What you can do is, you know, no matter how interesting or great that initial set of experiments that you present are, and no matter how you build upon them, there's probably some aspect of those results where you know this is the major. This was a major caveat. Or this was one piece of information that really kept these results from having the impact that they might have had. But in your hip pocket, you know, well, in our third set of experiments, we address that. And so, if you can present your sort of first two sections in a way that you don't explicitly say that, but you set the audience up. I can imagine, too, being like a really smart audience member, and you've brought me along for the ride, and I'm thinking, well... They think they're so smart, but they clearly have not thought yeah. about this. 
And then they say, and then we thought about this. You're like, yeah, oh. I love that. I love that. <laughs> but you know, that is a very intentional and savvy choice by someone who's crafting a scientific presentation. And if you can pull that off, especially in something like a job talk, that's really going to leave people with a positive impression of you and your science. Yeah, I love it. It's it's in music, as a musician, Josh, you know that you create tension in the chord structure and then resolve it at the bridge, right? There's everything we do as human beings is we build this tension, we resolve it. And it's kind of this wave pattern that goes through it. Um, I saw this framework many, many years ago described as situation, complication, resolution. And I saw it kind of in a PowerPoint format. So for every slide, it is part of this process. The situation is like fact-based. What, what is happening? The complication, you take what we just said about the facts, and then you make it complicated in some way to create that tension. Then you resolve it. And then that resolution leads to another situation, which leads to another complication. You can flow through your PowerPoint slides, just creating these tiny little waves. And, and that's what he was talking about, where it zooms up, it scales up, and it scales down. Uh, as you tell, as you craft individual sentences or as you give a whole presentation. So I encourage people to look up, uh, find his book, obviously, but also check out Situation, Complication, Resolution and search for that on Google. You'll find a lot of examples of how to craft this together. You know, Dan, I was reflecting back on some of the, the important talks that I gave back in my research career. And I think in some cases, instead of a Star Wars-like scenario with increasingly complex and and nuanced and surprising revelations. Mine was more like The Hobbit, a trilogy that probably should have just been one movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good feeling. <laughs> Everybody's looking at their watches like, oh, really? Okay, he's still talking. <laughs> this one-hour seminar could have been 15 minutes. Yeah, I definitely felt it as... I, you know, I had three sections in my dissertation, and they could not have been more disparate. You know, it's not as if the second one followed from the first one. It was, it was like three different projects that I had in the lab, and I kind of cobbled them together and tried to tie very loose strings between them. But, you know, one was a cell model, one was an animal model, one was like a totally random observation we made, and I probably did a pretty poor job of taking my readers along with me. So, I had plenty to learn. Well, sometimes when you're trying to cobble your dissertation together, Dan, you're just taking what you have and putting it together in such a way that you can graduate, and that's okay. But that's the, I think that's the point we got to at the end of the interview, Josh. Nobody starts their career and plans it all out and has a perfectly crafted story as they, as they research. It's always, I'm trying to transition into this academic career, and now I'm looking back and trying to craft a story around what I did. And and I want people to understand that nobody has this at the outset and everybody is putting it together at the end. And I think what he's got here for you is a way to put that together. So don't feel bad if your research <laughs> doesn't feel like a story, um, you make it a story. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so not to put too, not to be too on the nose with this, but that is perhaps an important distinction from this filmmaker trilogy analogy is whereas the, the the screenplay writer may have had the whole big picture in mind from the beginning as they broke it into these three these three crescendos of, of of films or movies in this trilogy as a scientist it never you you never do it that way you don't know what the end is going to be and so in retrospect you look back on everything you have and you put the effort into thinking, all right, what is the most interesting, compelling way that I can compile this right. into, a, into a story? And I would argue, I would argue that a lot of filmmakers don't have it all figured out either. <laughs> they don't know how much money the first film is going to make. <laughs> uh, Game of Thrones, Josh, that's all I need to say. Yeah, too bad they can't remake the last two seasons, really. But, you know, <laughs> but they ran out of funding, Dan. But, yeah, the funder pulled the funds, and that's that's what happened. We all suffered because of it. Uh, well, Dan, you know, this was really great. And, you know, I think this trilogy model, whereas, you know, you all were focusing on the job talk, as hopefully we've, we've made very clear, I think this is certainly useful as you're thinking about 
presenting your research in the context of a job talk, but I know many of our listeners are not doing a job talk in the next week or month. Uh, but I think a lot of these themes can be helpful in other contexts as you're thinking about how to synthesize your research and tell a good story. So hopefully you all found this useful. I know I'll remember this. All right, Josh. Well, if our listeners have other questions or topic ideas, we would obviously love to hear them. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. And honestly, the best way you can support us is just by sharing the podcast within your department or among your peers. So thank you to the ongoing support from all of our listeners. That's absolutely right. And if you have access to any beer that is no longer in production that you would love to send to us, we would gladly take it, share it, and brag about the fact that no one else can get it. (laughs) And just ruin it for everyone. All right, Dan, always a pleasure, and we will see you next time. All right, Josh. Take it easy. Take it easy.